Holy Spirit, well, still I called him it, and most of the people I knew called him it. Like you, I thought of sort of conjuring him up. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. So today, Nikki, we're going to talk about how to escape from Adventism's Godhead. (laughs) We all thought we were Trinitarians when we were Adventists, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I knew, I think some people knew that the founders weren't Trinitarian. The church will admit that they knew that they weren't Trinitarian when the church was founded. But they've changed, so they say, from anti-Trinitarian to Trinitarianism. But it isn't true Trinitarianism in spite of what they say. So it confuses the members. And as members, we thought we were Trinitarians because we used all the same words Christians used. Mm -hmm. Well, what difference does it make how we understand the Trinity? We can't completely understand the Trinity, but we do know what Scripture says. So, if we explain away the clear declaration of Scripture that God is one, and not just a group with the same name or the same will or the same purposes, if we explain away what Scripture says about that, then we never see what Jesus did in coming as our substitute and our sacrifice. Furthermore, we never really understand the new covenant. Even though we understand the gospel and we hear the words and we place our faith in Jesus, because frankly, I was born again before I understood more fully what the Trinity was. But we never really understand the power of the new covenant if we don't understand the Trinity. The reality that Jesus actually fulfilled the law and that the Holy Spirit is literally God indwelling us and giving us His own personal righteousness and grace and understanding of His will and word. We don't really understand that if we don't understand the Trinity. We can't understand that God Himself takes over all the work of the law, plus He makes us new. So, before we talk more about this Godhead deception that we grew up in, I want to say this. We love hearing from you. Please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly Proclamation Magazine emails with links to our YouTube channel. And you'll also find links to our online magazine and to this podcast. And also, If you love this podcast and would like to help support this work of bringing the gospel of the Bible to Adventists, please donate at proclamationmagazine.com by using the Donate tab. And also, if you haven't yet signed up to participate in our 2022 Former Adventist Conference, which will be occurring from February 18 to 20, please register. You can attend either in person or online, and you can sign up at proclamationmagazine.com, and you'll find a link there to the conference. Also, I want you to know that this year the conference is free. We really are interested in making sure that people understand the truth of the Bible and the problems with the Adventist foundations. And if you haven't attended a conference and would like to, it's more important to us that you be there than that you pay a small registration fee. So, just so you know, online, in person, it is free this year. And now, Nikki, I have my question. Okay. 
As an Adventist, how did you understand the Trinity or the Godhead? Well, that was shaped by my understanding of everything that happened in the garden and kind of in pre-creation history. I don't think I thought much about the Trinity there, except that God had to elevate Jesus to the Godhead. Is that right? Or to sonship. To the sonship, Which, in my head, I always thought Godhead. I don't know why I did that. I did too. Maybe that's the logical conclusion. (laughs) But when Jesus had to plead with the Father to come and save us after Adam and Eve fell, all of those stories that I heard, which, by the way, didn't happen, just to be clear. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) It created a picture that I wasn't necessarily specifically taught, because I didn't read Ellen White. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember being overtly taught about the Trinity. I didn't have a lot of Adventist education. But I had a picture in my head that lines right up with the stuff Ellen White said. God had a body. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus had to convince God of something. So Mm -hmm. they didn't have a shared will, even though they would come to agreements and have a similar purpose. (laughs) They didn't have a shared will. Uh, Jesus did not have all the attributes of God, especially at the incarnation. I'm not even sure I thought he did before that because he had to convince his dad (laughs) of something. And the Holy Spirit was a force something you could conjure up with enough prayer and the right song. (laughs) I I still remember this one song that we would sing at the Adventist church we attended before we left Adventism. And the words were, come Holy Spirit, I need you. Come sweet spirit, I pray. Come in your own gentle power. Come in your own gentle way. Then you say, amen, the organ ends and you can sit down (laughs) again. (laughs) But it was like a conjuring almost and not a person. I had a very Adventist picture of the Godhead, I think. Mm -hmm. Not a biblical one. (laughs) How about you? Well, I was taught in Adventist school about the Adventist Godhead And it's funny how I remember so many of these doctrinal specifics coming out of junior high. I think we must have had a special year where Adventist doctrine was taught to us, 7th or 8th grade. But I remember that the teacher was explaining that the Godhead was like a family. Mm -hmm. We had a father, a son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were one family with one name, And they all had shared goals and wills and purposes, and yet they were separate from each other. I'll be the first to admit that the idea of one God expressed in three persons, which is the way we sometimes refer to the Trinity in classic Christian conversation, that is mystifying. And it involves something we can't fully understand. But still, the fact is, I was actually taught that the three, quotes persons of the Godhead were separate beings. Now, those words might not have been used, but the family analogy, you know, you don't get to be a family unless you have two unrelated persons coming together and then having a related person. (laughs) So, I had the idea that Jesus was a somehow weaker, more pitiable, more compassionate version of the Father. The Father was the big guy. Um, He was kind. He was a little distant. Sometimes he seemed angry. Jesus was almost poor Jesus. Think what he did. He came and died for me. He came and showed me that I could be good, and he took that death that I deserved. 
And then the Holy Spirit, well, that was in my mind more of a force, even though I was taught he was a person. Still, I called him it, and most of the people I knew called him it. Like you, I thought of sort of conjuring him up, praying for his help, praying for his power if I needed something special. I did not have an understanding of an indwelling Holy Spirit, in spite of the fact that as I got older, I read those words in the New Testament. Jesus was a little embarrassing as I got older, and he was kind of for children, and I didn't even like saying his name, and I did not think he had omnipresence after he came and took a body. You know, it's so interesting because the Seventh-day Adventists say that the Ten Commandments reveal God's character. The Ten Commandments don't say any of the things that we just detailed. Isn't that interesting? Everything we thought we knew about God, about his character, about his nature— about his purposes. It was all defined by Ellen White and the Great Controversy Worldview. Had nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. That's true. Where did we get the idea they were revealing God when we had these pictures of God? It certainly wasn't them. And I I remember (laughs) when I had a situation come up after I had my firstborn son, he was very sick. And I had all of these ideas about God in my head that were shaped by a lack of knowing the God of the Bible. I did not know His character. I didn't know how He, what He expected from me other than to keep the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. I mean, I knew I was supposed to trust Jesus. Whatever that meant. (laughs) But I didn't understand, like, does He punish us if we don't obey Him? How does He teach us what we need to know since He doesn't talk to us? Right. (laughs) And boy, did I wish that he would, like he did in the Old Testament. Yeah, so it was like having a punitive parent who wasn't speaking with you, but would do things to usher you into their will. Yeah, you know, they, manipulate. Yeah, yeah. And so when I went through this difficult time, I remember thinking, what is God like? What did I do to deserve this? Right. And what do I do to get out of it? Yes. I had Adventist pastors telling me, just have faith, just have faith. My son was very sick. That We were told he could die. Just have faith. Faith in what? And what about the kid next door whose mom isn't visiting him? Is he going to die because she doesn't have faith and she's not here? I was so upset with the answers I was getting. I was so dissatisfied with the idea that all I had to do was look at the Ten Commandments to know what kind of God I served. And you actually thought about that during that time. Oh, yes, because I needed to know what I had to do to get out of this. Right. What does he expect from me? What did I do to get here? Why is my son paying for my sins? Right. It was so confusing. And all of these questions couldn't be answered by the people around me. It was just, oh, have faith. It was so (laughs) empty. Yeah. And at the same time, I had this song written by a Christian that was haunting me. It was the song that says, I will praise you in this storm. It was a beautiful song. The lyrics were wonderful. I wanted it to be true. I would try to mean it. But really, God knew my heart, Uh and my heart was saying, how is He doing that? What does He know that I don't know? And I remember praying, asking God to reveal Himself to me, and He ultimately did. But it was not through the Decalogue, and that's not to diminish any part of God's Word. Right. But what the Adventists told us about who God is and what God's like was completely fabricated from Ellen G. White and her time. That is a great point. I had never thought of it quite like that. I didn't know who God was from the Decalogue. I knew who God was from my Adventist doctrinal classes. Mm -hmm. And then all the children's Adventist books that told me who Jesus was 
and he was embarrassing and weak. So when I came to the 2010 conference, got to the end of the conference, heard such great teaching. It's all online, guys. You can go watch it on the YouTube channel. I knew at the end of that conference that the God that everyone had been talking about was a merciful, loving God who had accomplished everything we needed to be saved and who promises to keep us as His children, His born-again adopted children in salvation and to change us by His Spirit forever and ever. And I knew that's not the God I knew in Adventism. And I remember just feeling, I want to use the word fear of God, but it wasn't afraid. It was like, Mm -hmm. whoa. Yeah. (laughs) This God of the Bible is so big and he's not petty. Right. He's not manipulative. Right. He is so patient. I remember repenting forever thinking I knew him and deciding right then everything I've ever believed about God. That goes. It's in the garbage. Yeah. It goes. Even if there's truth in it, it's all gone. And I'm starting over. And scripture will now tell me who God is. I want to know who this God is. And he is a different God than mm-hmm. we grew up believing in, even though the words are all the same. And that was part of the confusion. The words sound the same. Christians think Adventists mean what they mean when they talk about the Trinity. No, they don't. Mm-mm. They've no. been lied to. Yes, they've been lied to. And I remember when I started realizing that the Jesus that I knew as an Adventist was fallible. Mm-hmm. He could have sinned. He could have failed. He could have cast the universe into total chaos if he had not come through and managed to be sinless and managed to take that death without a, <laughs> like the old spiritual says, with never a mumbling word. If he had mumbled <laughs> or complained on that cross, he could have doomed the whole of creation to destruction because God would have rejected him. But didn't Ellen White say that he risked the Trinity? I don't know for sure, but okay, Doug Batchelor okay. does. Okay. Doug Batchelor definitely says God risked the Trinity being broken up and the universe going into chaos by sending Jesus. God risked. Mm. God risked breaking up the Godhead. God risked losing all of creation because everything hung on the balance of a Jesus who was fallible. And I was taught he was fallible, Nikki. It wasn't just implied to me. I remember my Bible teacher in junior high again saying, if Jesus hadn't been able to sin, if he hadn't been fallible... He couldn't have been our substitute. Their, fun, their fundamental belief book says that. I remember reading, how could it even be fair? I'm not quoting, but right. how could it be fair for him to be our substitute if he couldn't have sinned? It's rigged then. I think they even said it would be rigged. <laughs> rigged. So that's not the God I know now. No. That's not the God of the Bible. That Okay, a God who could risk the Trinity is not an omniscient, omnipotent God. No. No. And that is not the Trinity. The Trinity is not three separate people who just depend on each other to come through. Mm -hmm. The Trinity is one God, one being. As the Shema in Deuteronomy says, God is one. And Jesus said, God is one. How then can He be expressed in three persons? I can't explain that fully, but we have to know that the words mean what the words say. It's not three separate beings, like Richard is a being, and I am a being, and we come together and share the name Tinker, and we have two Tinker sons. That's not the Trinity. 
That's not what that is. If they would understand this, if they would just believe scripture, it would resolve a lot of their conflict. You know, this idea of this cosmic child abuser. Now, wait a minute. God is one being. Right. It pleased the Father to be our substitute. What if we put it that way? Is that better? God himself hung on the cross. It wasn't a representative of God. It wasn't his ambassador. Jesus wasn't just God's ambassador in human flesh, like a dressed-up angel, Michael perhaps, the (laughs) archangel, come in human flesh to show us who God was. How could anybody but God himself show us God? That's what Adventism misses. They tried to tell me, as a kid, that Jesus came and showed us how good God was because Jesus was obedient, Jesus was kind, Jesus never said bad things to people, Jesus suffered in silence, and He showed us that God loves us. But that's not how Jesus showed us who God was. Jesus came as God and showed us who God was. <laughs> yeah, That's how He showed us. And yet, He's not the Father, and He's not the Holy Spirit, and yet, you can't separate the three of them. So you can't have Jesus begging the Father to do anything. No. They have always been one God. The Trinity has always been eternal, sovereign, everything that we are not, God is, and God created Satan. And Lucifer has never been in heaven questioning how Jesus got exalted to the position of Son instead of Him. He always knew Jesus was His Creator. As it says in John 1, nothing that has been made has been made without Him. So, a lot of what we're describing here is the divine simplicity of God. Yes. That He has all of His attributes at all times, and each of those attributes informs the other. And so, Jesus is always God. God the Father is always God. The Holy Spirit is always God. And they share their will, and not in the way the Adventists say it. The Adventists say that they argued about how to save us, but they have a shared will. (laughs) They do doublespeak. They do. The Trinity has one singular will, one will, not a will that's in agreement with each other. (laughs) That's really important. I love the way you said that, Nikki. And when I came to understand that all of these attributes existed in all three persons of the Trinity at the same time, I begin to get a completely different picture of how God interacts with us. Because if His justice is informed by His omniscience and by His compassion and by His mercy and by His holiness, it means any judgment that He makes is good. And who am I to question Him? Anything that comes into my life doesn't come into my life unless it's passed through the sovereign will of the Father. So when I encounter a situation like when my son was sick and I know that God, I can sing, I will praise you in this storm. And I can mean it. And it's not just me mustering up faith to try to please him and appease him so that he helps give me what I want and heal my kid. It's a different world. Understanding now that God is not physical, that God is spirit. Even in the Lord Jesus, God is spirit. He has two complete separate natures. He is and has always been God. When He came to this earth, He took a human body and a human nature. He didn't combine the two. He didn't go half and half. We can't explain it, but He has always been the fullness of deity dwelt in Him bodily. Jesus is God who is spirit, and Jesus is 
the Son of Man. Can't explain that. That's a singularity. But we have to know that Scripture tells us that. So when we understand that God is spirit and is not physical, then we see that who He is is not just a glorified human. And we are not created in His image as I was taught, partly by how I look, that my head and the fact I have two eyes and a nose and a mouth and two arms and two legs, that that is somehow representative of God's physical image. That's not true, because God is spirit. My being in His image is that God gave me a spirit. He gave us life from Him and a spirit that can know Him and He's housed our spirit in our bodies, that's something He chose to do to make us human. But understanding that, it completely changes my relationship to God. The true Trinity is not human, and I am subject to the Trinity. The Adventist Godhead was sort of like a Greek hero, you know, a a Greek pantheon, sort of half God, half man, half predictable, half unpredictable. And I had to figure out how to please this God of three persons who was kind of like me, only better, you know, a sinless me. No, he is not like I am. He is God. So, as you talk about God being spirit and you talk about the God of the Bible, all of that is derived from God's word alone. And the picture of the Adventist God is completely derived from Adventist theology. That's a great point. You're describing being made in God's image, but the Adventist God is made in man's image. Yes. It's made according to their <laughs> their visions, their conferences, their books, whatever. Right. The Adventist view is derived also from Ellen White's changing words about God. Because the fact of the matter is, those founders were anti-Trinitarian. Many of them were Arian or semi-Arian, believing that Jesus had a beginning back in prehistory sometime. That would mean He wasn't God. Now, can I explain this? No, I can't. God has not revealed it to us. And you know what else I think? I think that we are three-dimensional people stuck inside of time, and there are things and dimensions we do not have access to. We have to know that what God says is true without understanding and being able to scientifically explain it. We have to trust Him. Ellen White's visions, which she got from a demon, are not going to tell us the truth. And as logical as it may sound to us who are stuck inside of time in a physical world, we are not going to be able to understand eternal truth through the eyes of a false prophet from a demon who didn't want us to know eternal truth because... His goal is to keep us enslaved. You know, it's like a big cosmic gossip problem. (laughs) I mean, why not learn about a person from the person? Right. Let's learn about God from God. We don't know Him unless He speaks, and He has spoken in His Word. He has. And as A.W. Tozer has famously said, our pastor often quotes this, and Nikki, it was interesting, we both independently put this in our notes. (laughs) This wonderful quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's why we have to deal with the Adventist Godhead and come to terms with what the Bible says. You know, one of my favorite books, I always talk about this book, it's Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And he talks about mental images, and he says we don't need graven images 
to be idolatrous. We can have these mental images. He says that when we focus our thoughts on our image of God, Mm -hmm. this mental image, and we worship and pray to Him as that image represents Him, he says the extent to which the image fails to tell the truth about God, to that extent, you will fail to worship God in truth. that's a great point. I know I know that I was sincerely wanting to know and worship God as an Adventist. I was too. And when I began to see the big discrepancy between the Adventist God and the God of the Bible, I felt like to admit that would be to admit that I hadn't been worshiping God and I hadn't been praying to God. And I had to come to terms with the fact that Scripture says that He calls us Mm -hmm. and that He knew who would be His from the foundation of the earth. He chose us. And He does interact with us and draw us to the Son and bring us to salvation. And so He is interactive in our life. And if we're among those who who believe in Him, eventually we respond. And I'm not going to say that Adventists aren't responding to God in their life in various places and aspects, but I would say it is profoundly in spite of what they think is true about God and that it's only God's mercy that is allowing them to any extent interact with him before they have that saving faith. That's God's grace and mercy to us as he draws us. And it's so true that we are not saved on the basis, like you said last week, that we're not saved on the basis of our good intentions or our sincerity. I'm doing the best I can, and God knows I'm doing the best I can. We are saved entirely by God. He draws us. He gives us the faith to believe Him. He brings us to new life so we can perceive who He is as He reveals Himself. He does this. We don't have to get our constructs figured out in order for Him to save us. We don't work ourselves into salvation by trying to understand Him. But it sure is a significant thing when we realize who He is and it's upside down from what we thought. Because as an Adventist, I thought my free will was the sovereign value in the universe, which God would work to protect. God limited Himself to protect my free will, your free will, Satan's free will. No, God is sovereign. And we all, including Satan, function under His sovereign control. He does, in some way we cannot explain, allow us to make decisions and choices which have eternal significance. But He is sovereign, and I can trust Him because He's sovereign, and He won't change, and He's not like me. Yeah, that that thing that we tell ourselves, God knows my heart, I'm sincere, I'm, you know, I'm a good person, or if you've never said that about yourself, that person, they're a good person, they're sincere, God knows their heart. That's an excuse. Yes. Because knowing the truth about God, knowing and believing God's own testimony about Himself is not an insignificant matter. No. We're not lost or saved on the basis of our sincerity. It's the object of our faith that saves us. That's right. And so this is a really important matter. It's why we're talking about it. This is a big deal. It's why this ministry exists, because Adventism has put obstacles up, preventing people from knowing the truth about God, people who are loyal to Adventism and who don't want to question their mental images. I never will forget when I first understood what it meant that God was one and that Jesus is all God. 
I had always believed Jesus is all God, and I've used this analogy before, but it is so powerful to me even now that I will say it again. I had believed Jesus was all God as if he were a third of the piece of the God pie. That's all God. He's not anything else. It's just God. That did not mean that he had all the ingredients of the pie in him. Mm -hmm. He could have had a seed in his little third, or a piece of core, or a peel, or a little lump of brown sugar, or whatever. Maybe a stray raisin. (laughs) But that would not be the whole pie. That would just be who his all God was. And when I understood that Jesus is fully God means... Jesus has all the ingredients of the pie in him. The Father has all those same ingredients, and the Holy Spirit has all those same ingredients, not just identical ones, but the same ones. That changed everything for me. That meant that when Jesus came and took a body, he was all God, and he never gave up his omnipresence. That means that even though He functioned as a man. He didn't give up his God power just to become a man. It was still all there, as Colossians 1 says in Colossians 2.9, the fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. There wasn't one tiny lump of brown sugar from that pie that was missing from Jesus that was in the (laughs) Father or the Holy Spirit. God is God. So, when I now look at Jesus, I see that His coming was not to show me as a weak, sinful human how to keep the law. His coming was as the one who gave the law. He was under the law as a Jew, as a man, but he was also God who gave the law, and he fulfilled the law because only he could. Only he could. He was the only human who could, and he was God, so he could. And he became my substitute because he could offer that perfect, sufficient sacrifice for all human sin. It changed everything about Jesus and what the atonement meant. Absolutely. It's an act of love. It is not a PR problem. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. This wasn't so that he could vindicate God or teach us how to vindicate God. He did this for us. The Father glorified the Son in it, but they did this in mercy and compassion. And this was not in answer to some kind of accusation from Satan. No. This was a divine decision about us, and it was actually made before he created Adam and Eve, because Revelation tells us that the names of those written in the book of life were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Can I explain that? No. But it's what the Bible says. This is not plan B. This is eternal sovereign God working out his eternal sovereign purposes. And my goodness, the miracle is that he caused us to be born because he foreknew us. He wanted us in his eternal plan and he's brought us into his plan. That's the miracle. It's not that he's somehow beating obedience into us. It's that he's chosen us and is bringing us to life because he is sovereign. And all of this... All of this truth that you're speaking comes from Scripture. There are piles of Bible verses that you could give our listeners if you had time to. This is all derived from Scripture. Absolutely. And I keep thinking of what you said last week about those men who 
went and saw the Passion of the Christ and then went to eat afterwards. And they talked and they decided that God doesn't have wrath. That's idol building. Yes. Now, I want to read Galatians three nineteen to 27, because this is one of those passages that for us as former Adventists is so, so significant because it tells us about the origin and the termination of the law, but it also tells us about Jesus. And this is only a Jesus who is all God. At the same time, He is the Son of Man who could have accomplished this. And this is what it says, Galatians 3, 19-27. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. I'm just going to stop here and say, who was that intermediary? Moses. Of course. He went up the mountain. He got the tables. He delivered the law. He gave Israel God's expectations for them. And then they built the place where the law would be housed. So, Moses is the intermediary. Okay, back to the text. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, I'm going to go on, but I want to make a point here because that sentence didn't make sense to me for a long time. The intermediary implying more than one is just exactly what happened at Sinai. God is God, Israel was Israel, and that law was a covenant between God and Israel, and both God and Israel participated in making that covenant. God said, here are my expectations, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, and Israel said, great, we'll do everything you said. And Moses represented God to Israel, and they were very different. He was the messenger. He comes down the mountain twice, by the way, with those tablets because the first time he broke them in anger. So, God sends him down as his messenger, and then he goes back up and tells God, you know, I've delivered this. He's the intermediary. But when it says, but God is one, the point Paul is now going to make is that God himself is the mediator of the new covenant. Moses was the intermediary for the Old Covenant between two parties, but in the Lord Jesus, we have one. We have God, we have man, we have one man. He's not representing two parties. He is both parties. Wow. And this is what the text goes on to say. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Pause. In other words, not to those who don't believe. Now, I'll finish this passage. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, it was never sent to justify us. It was just holding us in guardianship until we could be justified by faith. It kept us from hurting ourselves. It kept us from hurting others. It kept us remembering we were sinful. It kept us controlled when we were out of control with our inherent sin. And then it goes on, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, 
you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Nikki, we've put on God. When the Father looks at us, He sees God when we're in Christ. Jesus was not a demigod. Jesus was not a poor, suffering, weak man. Now, yes, he did suffer in every way we do and worse, but he was God all that time. He gave up none of his godness, and that was how he could be our Savior. Nikki, I didn't understand that with the Adventist Godhead. No, me neither. It wasn't taught Mm -mm. to us that the Lord came to show us how to keep the law. He showed us that a normal human who wasn't God could keep the law and made a way for us to attempt to earn our way in, to be honest. Yes, to be honest. That's exactly right. If we were good enough, if we honored the law, if we kept the Sabbath, we could get in. If we believed that Jesus came and died for us. And you know, I could never quite figure out what the death was. I was told it was so we didn't have to experience the second death, which I was told was annihilation. But I wasn't exactly taught how that worked. How did that work? Because I still had to keep the law. Basically, it was all example. See, I did it. You can do it. Hang in there. Buck up. I'll give you my strength. Yeah. You do your best. I'll do the rest. And one in 20. Yeah. And this is why Adventists can say, oh, I believe God is a trinity, while they have the Godhead in their head. And they can say, oh, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, while they believe that once you have faith in Jesus, they're Jesus, now you have to keep the law. They have all these definitions incorrect in their mind. And so, so many people will say, I can leave Adventism, and they mean Sabbath-keeping, Ellen White, and vegetarianism, and just be a Christian. And then they never evaluate what they believe because they don't know it came from her. That's the truth. And then they walk out there and they are offended at the idea that anyone would say Adventism doesn't have the Trinity. They don't have the gospel. And what they need more than anything is the biblical truth about God and the gospel. You can't worship the Jesus I learned in junior high doctrine class. He was just a pathetic friend who tried to protect me from the wrath of his own father. No, he was God who took his own wrath for my sin, so I don't have to be separated from God. There's one other text that goes with that Galatians passage, and I know I've read this before, but it it is such a profound passage to me. It's 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator— between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And there's one God. It's repeated there. There's one God. And there's one mediator summed up in the man Christ Jesus. And he's God. And there's one God. And he's the mediator. And he's man. This is something only God could do. And in him was the offended party and the offending representative party. He represented the offending humans and the offended God. And in him, he took all the curses of sin on himself and broke those curses and restored the life of God to the offender, the man who believes in him. This is unbelievable. This is not the Adventist Godhead. What you said there about him restoring life. (sighs) 
that's another aspect of the gospel I didn't understand. It's the resurrection life of Christ that causes us to be born again. That's where our spirit comes to life. That spirit that he promised in Ezekiel, he would give us a new spirit that he would put his spirit in us. And that's the spirit that returns to the Father when we die and when we separate from our bodies, this is a different worldview. Yes. I know that the Adventists listening to this know that what we're saying is not what they believe. I know. But what we're saying is from Scripture. It's yes. from Scripture. Absolutely. Another thing that has helped me understand when I started to see that the Trinity is one, and how do I make sense of that when there's three persons? One of the passages that's so meaningful to me even though it's really like beyond full comprehension, is from Jesus's upper room prayer in John 17. This is delivered the night Jesus was taken before Caiaphas and was arrested. And he's with his disciples in the upper room and he's praying. This is verses 22 to 26. In the hearing of his disciples, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And I just want to stop there and say, what glory did he have that anybody out there could see? He's saying this in the present tense. The glory you have given me, I have given to them. So the reality of who he is and the gospel of who he is and the fact that he is the mediator, this is God's glory on display and will soon be on display on the cross. And he's given this glory, this life, this reality of the true God he's shared with his disciples. And then he goes on, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Nikki, how do we even understand the magnitude of that? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. When we trust Jesus, he gives us the life of God, and the Holy Spirit is sent to indwell us, Ephesians 1 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit is God as much as Jesus is God, as much as the Father is God. There is no difference in substance. When we trust Jesus, we are made alive with God Himself. And that's why the law is obsolete for us. We could never keep the law. Israel could never keep the law. Only Jesus could keep the law because He was God and He kept the law, thus qualifying himself to be our substitute on the cross, taking the curse of sin. He didn't sin. He kept the law, and he always loved the Father, but he broke death. And it was his death, his own death, that was sufficient to satisfy the law's demands, God's own demands, that enabled him to break the curse of death. He is God, and he pulls us into his life when we trust him. This has nothing to do with the law or the Sabbath. 
and this has nothing to do with the Adventist Godhead. So, in answer to the question that was the title of this episode, How to Leave the Adventist Godhead, I want to say, open your Bible Mm. and read what Jesus himself said about himself. Read John 17, all of it. Read John 5 and read Galatians. The God of the universe is not the Godhead of Adventism. We worship a sovereign, eternal, almighty, righteous, merciful, and gracious God, and we're His when we trust Him. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our conference and to sign up for our weekly emails. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us next week as we continue our series on how to live life after Adventism with a discussion on what it means to live by faith when we know the real trinity of the Bible. And we'll see you then.